0: Hello, this is Jim Wallace and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Ruth Bronstein is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Connecticut and Director of the Meanings of Democracy Lab.
1: We also see in the past couple of years a kind of interesting phenomenon where where individuals who are not particularly religious, but are on the right in terms of their political views, are strong supporters of Donald Trump, have embraced the label evangelical in order to describe themselves without actually adopting any of the practices. And so in that sense, we can see that that there is something about the label of evangelical, and also certain kinds of religious symbols and practices that have become more prominent on the far right today.
0: A cultural sociologist interested in the role of religion and morality in American public life, Ruth's award-winning research has been published in the American Sociological Review, The Guardian, and many other outlets. She holds a PhD in sociology from New York University and a BS in foreign service from Georgetown University. I like the sound of that, where she studied international culture and politics and where I now teach. So, Ruth, first of all, I'm so glad you joined us today. I appreciate your time. And something I'd like to ask all of my guests, and you can take this in any direction you like, how is your spirit these days, Ruth? How is your spirit?
1: It's such a good question, and it's not one that sociologists often get asked. Um, and so I, you know, I've had to think a minute for about about my answer, but you know, I think that it is optimistic. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, I think that Americans are thinking really hard about issues that have often been swept under the rug for, you know, decades, generations, however long we might have it. And that, you know, results in a lot of conflict. And we can focus on that conflict. But we can also focus on sort of what that means for our ability to move forward. And I, I right now, if you ask me tomorrow, I can't say for sure, but right now I feel like that conflict is productive.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of tension in these topics and even conflict. Well, let's get into all of that. I want to ask you about a new survey of 6,212 Americans by the Public Religion Research Institute. And the Brookings Institution is the largest yet to gauge the size and scope of Christian nationalist beliefs. And it finds that 10% of Americans are avowed Christian nationalists, what the survey calls adherents, while an additional 19% are sympathetic to Christian nationalist ideas. Now, that's almost 30,000, 30%. Now, that's almost 30% of the American people. While these numbers are concerning, you note there's a silver lining in the survey. What do you think about these numbers and how significant they are? And what's that silver lining?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think the numbers are concerning. You know, I think that the fact that 30% of Americans agree with the statements, and I think it's worth, worth noting what the statements are that they agreed with. You know, one of them, the one that I think gets the most uh, attention from me, is God has called Christians to exercise dominion over all areas of American society. And if the U.S. moves away from our Christian foundations, we will not have a country anymore. U.S. laws should be based on Christian values. These are these are slightly stronger than the questions that have previously been asked to uh, measure Christian nationalism. Historically, we've used vaguer kinds of terms like the U.S. government uh, should declare America a Christian nation or being Christian is an important part of being truly American. And those are more broadly held uh, sentiments. But, you know, I think the fact that so many Americans are agreeing with these much stronger ideas uh, should be cause for concern and suggests that, uh, you know, this sentiment leans toward what we might think of as a theocratic kind of ideology. The numbers get bigger as well. When we look at subsets of Americans, like Republicans And so when we can see sort of the influence of these ideas within those subgroups, you know, almost more than half of Republicans, you know, are adherents or sympathetic to Christian nationalism, and the numbers get higher when we look at white evangelicals. And so, you know, I do think that these numbers are concerning, particularly because we know that being sympathetic to these ideas also makes people more open to political violence. And we saw, you know, an early warning sign of what that could look like on January 6th of 2021. But as you know, I do think there's a silver lining here, because while this is the headline of the study, the headline is that large numbers of Americans agree with these ideas, Christian nationalists have also become much more visible and explicit about their goals in the past year. And that has made them easier for other Americans to see and to understand exactly what they want. And that has, I believe, provoked a backlash. We can look at the numbers just in this study that when we actually look at people who have heard of this term, Christian nationalism, they are twice as likely to hold a negative view than a positive view of the term. And when we dig into those numbers, this isn't just about the term itself, they also reject the the specific ideas associated with Christian nationalism. And so yes, around one third of Americans embrace Christian nationalism to some degree, but almost that same number of Americans, 29%, completely reject every single one of the premises associated with Christian nationalism. And then another 40% of Americans is skeptical to some degree. And so I think that we can shift our focus slightly, not ignoring those who ascribe to Christian nationalist beliefs, but also recognizing that two thirds of Americans are concerned about this.
0: You say theocratic, and it's also autocratic, right? Yes. Theocratic leads to an autocratic view of government.
1: Absolutely. Um, Colleagues of mine, Phil Gorski and Sam Perry just wrote a wonderful book about white Christian nationalism, and and they sort of talk about the the framework that underlies this, um, and they describe it as freedom for us, and us being defined as white Christians, and order for them, which is everybody else. And so, you know, this emphasis on religious freedom really only extends to people who are part of this in-group, and everybody else through this you know, worldview should be subjected to pretty extreme uh, order and suppression.
0: We've had both of them on on the Soul of a Nation podcast, and I think they and you paint this uh, pretty frightening picture because it isn't just a theological point of view. It goes along with, as you just pointed out, not, not only autocracy, but even the use or justification of political violence. But that silver lining you see about maybe there's value in naming this and making it visible so people can see it and hear about it directly. There's lots of more and more books and, and scholars like yourselves doing this. But let's talk more about that, that reaction to it or that backlash to it. You're mm-hmm. actually going to do a study or map what you call the pluralist resistance as you call it, at the Meanings of Democracy Lab. By the way, I love that name. By the way, the Meanings of Democracy Lab.
1: Well, thank you.
0: You run at the University of Connecticut, so you're going to map what you're calling the pluralist resistance. Tell us about that project and what you hope to accomplish.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think one of the things that has become really um, clear to me, and also in need of more study, is that there's a wide variety of of actors, leaders campaigns, organizations that are in different ways uh, concerned about the rise of Christian nationalism and its various kind of effects on American democracy. And they're all doing really interesting work, but they're not all coordinated. Um, And so there's a lot of a lot of groups that are doing this in the in the religious sphere. Um, And you are at the center of some of this work. There's groups like Christians Against Christian Nationalism, which has really done an amazing job of bringing uh, Christian leaders and organizations together to think about how Christian nationalism is not only a problem for democracy, but is also a problem for Christianity. Um, Groups like uh, Vote Common Good are are really bringing a lot of attention to this issue and educating their constituencies um, in the broader public about what Christian nationalism means. Um, and those have gotten so far the most attention, although not, I think, as much as they could. Um, but beyond those, there's just a huge number of organizations and actors from the kind of civic world. There's also um, a lot of interest right now from philanthropies, from journalists who want to be able to better understand what they're seeing in their communities. And, you know, these are all different kinds of reactions, but they're all reactions rooted in both concern about what Christian nationalism means and is demanding, about inaccuracies in the Christian nationalist mythology about American history, and also a shared interest in promoting and creating a more pluralist vision of the country. And so part of what I'd like to Map and I'm in the process of of starting is just really identifying who are all these actors who are doing this work and how might we be able to better understand this effort at the multiple different levels that it is operating both to help Americans the public better understand these alternatives to Christian nationalism and arguments against it, but also to help people who are participating in this work to better understand who else is doing the kinds of things that they're interested in doing.
0: You know, it's interesting, the silver lining you talk about of uh, the increasing visibility of white Christian nationalism and naming it. It's interesting to me how many of the of the leaders of that movement uh, reject the term white Christian nationalism. And I'll just say, I had a conversation once with Ralph Reed about all this, and he insisted there was no racism in his movement. And in fact, they were an integrated movement. He talked about a few friends of color he has here and there. But 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 the policies that they end up supporting uh, just entrench policies of white supremacy in almost every area, housing and education and economics and, and voting rights. You know, they're overtly uh, in favor of uh, voter suppression. Robbie Jones, the pollster that we both know, uh, his polls say that the white Christian nationalism people think it's just too easy to vote, that too many of the wrong people are voting, and I call it uh, fake voter fraud, real racism. You know, but Ralph Reed will deny any association with racism, and it's an integrated movement. So, how do you respond to uh, to that, the rejection of a term? And as you say, people say, "No, we're very inclusive. We're very integrated." Uh, that doesn't apply to us.
1: Well, I think that it it becomes a matter of how you approach those folks, and and I do think about this from the perspective that for at least some people, the more right, if they know better, they can do better, and that for a lot of Americans, particularly those who have been raised to believe in the power of individual effort and to believe that the system is fair and to believe that the country truly is colorblind and that to focus too much on race is racist, which are relatively kind of mainstream ideas that many Americans are raised with, the idea that the country is a Judeo Christian nation organized around some broad set of Judeo Christian values isn't going to seem immediately problematic to them. And so to agree with the ideas associated with that doesn't necessarily make them an extremist. And I like to believe that education, having more conversations, teaching people to be more critical about some of these ideas can help them to understand why some of those premises are are wrong and problematic. Whereas if you immediately label them An extremist who's promoting theocracy, they will tend to double down and actually move farther to the right in their ideas because the people that aren't yelling at them, who are welcoming them into their fold, are going to be on the far right. And I think we can see how this works in terms of people being turned away from the kind of scolding left, as they say it, and turning toward uh, more far right media sources that encourage these ideas further, and in many cases, bring them further toward right wing ideas than they ever were in the first place. So I don't think that this is the only way to approach this. And you know, there's very differences of opinion about how to do this. But I do think that there's an opening, at least for some people, who I would put in this category of kind of Judeo-Christian nationalists, who are not using this uh, cynically, just as coded language or as a dog whistle, but really just don't understand it, where there might be an opening to convince them otherwise.
0: You mentioned King and his uh, reference to Stone Mountain, even in his most famous 1963, I Have a Dream speech. And King really used Judeo-Christian scriptures and values uh, to call for the remaking uh, of a new America based on not only uh, our sacred religious texts, but the founding texts of this nation's uh, uh, documents. Uh, and he would, you know, he would basically say, it's because of these texts, because of what we say we believe that we should change uh, and move beyond Stone Mountain and all, all the rest. I, I don't think King would have ever been successful uh, in France, for example, where there was no deep religious tra- tradition to appeal to. He deeply he had, his, he had his Bible in one hand and the Declaration of Independence in the other hand. He was holding up these sacred texts. So in the Judeo-Christian context, there's a whole different, radically different, inclusive vision uh, of, of what he would call the beloved community, so different from white Christian nationalism. So, so there's a way to, to turn those values, as King did so well, uh, against these narrow expressions white christian nationalism
1: absolutely and i you know i i study christian nationalism but i also study the religious left and and one thing that's often struck me is exactly what you're describing which is that there are leaders on the you know what we might call the religious left more progressive religious folks and particularly those who are not white who use language coming out of the christian tradition who use christian symbolism who, who use Christian ideas very explicitly in their public life, and they are not perceived as promoting theocracy. And there's often this sense of, well, isn't this hypocritical that, you know, the same people that will point to the religious right and say this is inappropriate will point to Martin Luther King and say this is good for democracy. And I do think that it, that it comes down to, the fact that one group represents a demographic majority with huge amounts of cultural power, and they're using these ideas to maintain their power, whereas groups that are outside of that majority right, are using Christian ideas and the idea of Judeo-Christian values as a way of sort of seeking inclusion. And I think those Those are different, and I think they also read differently to the public. But if you just look at them with no understanding of the context of the United States, they would look very similar.
0: Yeah, so this isn't just a political battle. It's really a theological battle at the same time. Uh, Back to political violence for a moment. You mentioned that. It's very important to recognize that January 6th was just uh, uh, where, you know, those, uh, those who stormed the Capitol with violence had the Confederate flag in their hands. Uh, the, the guy who did that has just been sentenced to three years in prison for that. But they also had Christian symbols and pictures of Jesus and crosses, and they prayed when they took over the Senate gallery. So we saw that political violence with Christian symbols on January 6th. But now, as you point out, uh, groups like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, right-wing political militia groups, have picked up on those what you call religious identity markers or symbols and now they're taking this out around the country i hear stories of going to events uh, about black history lgbtq celebrations and intimidating with their guns and their and have shut down a lot of events so this is actually happening across the country now this resorting a theology that wants autocracy resorting to political violence to achieve it
1: absolutely and i think that this is one of those cases where we maybe didn't recognize as clearly as we could have how much Christianity plays a a role on the far right, even in groups that we don't necessarily think of as religious. And this has been true for decades. This has been true in the white power movement, in uh, militia organizations, in the Klan, among neo-Nazis, where when we trace sort of the place of religion in these groups it is not always the headline it's not always the organizing principle but it is often code for whiteness and it is often used as a symbolic kind of resource that they use to sort of align themselves with americanness or with morality and then of course it is it is a test of belonging and so the primary kind of bad actors for many of those groups are jews because they are non-Christian, in more recent years have been Muslims and also are are non-religious groups, and so we can really see the place a more subtle role that Christianity has played on the far right when we start looking for it. But it's always been there. At the same time, we also see in the past couple of years a kind of interesting phenomenon where group where individuals who are not particularly religious but are On the right, in terms of their political views, our strong supporters of Donald Trump have embraced the label evangelical in order to describe themselves without actually adopting any of the practices. And so in that sense, we can see that that there is something about the label of evangelical and also certain kinds of religious symbols and practices that have become more prominent on the far right today.
0: You talk about backlashes to this, the religious right. You talk about, you already named the identifying and making more visible this, which is a, a backlash to it, and the resistance that you're now mapping. But one of the backlashes to it that really hits me so hard that I wish the right would accept and acknowledge and deal with is all the data that you and others have shown that, sh- that shows how young Christians in particular are leaving faith because of the religious right in the nineteen nineties, eighties and nineties, and now this white Christian nationalism. It's it's turning people away from faith, turning them out of the churches, and we could lose a whole generation to faith because of these white Christian nationalists, which they're not taking at all seriously.
1: They're not. And in some ways they've created a self-fulfilling prophecy about secularization where they say society is secularizing. But then because of the extreme sort of extremely defensive posture that has been taken to defend against that, they've actually pushed people out of their own ranks and turned them into non-religious sort of people who they would sort of characterize as part of the secularizing society. And so I do think that this is a concern or should be a concern for these communities. But what I what I did also find when thinking about the backlash is that yes, backlash to the religious right now, Christian nationalism does appear to be pushing people out of religion. But at the same time, it's not just doing that. And it also appears to be leading people down a variety of other paths that don't involve fully dissociating themselves from religion or religious belief and practice, but rather to rework those in ways that feel both politically comfortable for them and spiritually comfortable for them. And that's a space that I think is perhaps not, you know, something that church leaders are excited about because those people are not sitting in the pews. But I think as a sociologist, as somebody who observes these things, I think it's a somewhat exciting period of, of creative destruction. Where people are trying new things building new kinds of institutions and communities and not fully leaving religion behind
0: so I gave my students a quiz this uh, this spring both classes what's the fastest growing uh, denomination in the country and they got it right it's the none of the aboves those who <laughs> choose not to affiliate called called nuns it's the new nuns the none of the above but but that movement isn't secular. In fact, most of them believe in God, believe in something bigger or higher power than themselves, more than themselves. They're drawn to that. But they're they're not affiliating with religion that says and does things that they find appalling. And yet, as you say so rightly so, they're they're just reworking things and trying to figure out some are the nuns, some are spiritual, but not religious, they would say. But but this, it is an opportunity for churches not to just, just say they're unchurched, so they're uh, you know they're a problem. No, they're unchurched because we haven't churched them very well, and yet they're really open to a different kind of faith and defined in different kinds of ways. And it really is an opportunity, uh, but they are being pushed away, du- directly being pushed away by what we call the religious right and by white Christian nationalism in particular.
1: They are. And for a lot of those folks, they're also finding themselves not all that interested in going to a more liberal politicized church. So there's also this sort of group that's that's looking for a space that where politics doesn't play a role at all, which is, of course for people who recognize that politics is everywhere, including you know deeply embedded in all of our personal relationships, um, is a hard task and is creating a challenge for clergy who want to be able to uh, open their doors and minister to people of a variety of different kinds of, of political leanings within a single community. But in a society that's so heavily partisan and, and polarized politically, that's extremely difficult to do. So that's a space that I'm watching closely as well.
0: Yeah, it's, they're, they're not interested in going partisan the other way either. I often say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. I just came off a phone call, literally, where the Congress is threatening to subpoena uh, uh, traditional Christian groups working at the border with undocumented people and subpoena them for feeding those people. Therefore, they're encouraging the invasion of the country. This is really being done and talked about. So on the call, uh, this uh, person being subpoenaed said, they're they're subpoenaing us for doing the ministry of the church. This goes back 2,000 years. He said, when Jesus says how we treat the least of these is how we treat him. So I think getting to those deeper questions, how we treat the least of these, is a bipartisan or nonpartisan concern i do see young people drawn to to that but they're not looking to become chaplains of the left the way they see people being the chaplains of the right
1: absolutely and then there are groups that are coalescing around shared progressive left political values, and not necessarily shared religious values, but are forming things that look like faith communities around that as well. And so it's really just a hugely uh, heterogeneous group of people that we lump together as the nuns in terms of both their politics and their reaction to the religious right. What I think they're all saying is that this particular combination of religion and politics is, is toxic. Um, it's bad for the country and it's bad for their relationship to faith, whatever form that takes. And they're trying to find a way, way to combine those things in practice.
0: That's right. And your you talk about in your article, uh, I love this part. The article, this article does not address the question of whether America was in fact founded as a Christian nation. In fact, uh, there 's a real debate about that, but people believe that 's true even even if it isn't and And the other is whether Christianity and American democracy are compatible or not and I would strongly argue that there 's a certain kind of Christianity, this white Christian which is in fact I would call the greatest threat to democracy that we face right now, but in fact it 's a uh, you replace bad religion. I, in my view, not with no religion, but better religion. <laughs> and so, and then you partner with people who are of different faiths and, and even no faith at all, but who, as you say, care about these deeper questions. So it really is a, a, a moment, I think, of real opportunity, as, as you put it. My last question is a question of an activist to a sociologist. <laughs> so, so movements, uh, we always have to decide in a movement who we can persuade and who we have to defeat. And I think movements have to do both. They have to understand who they can bring over and who they have to defeat. Now, I mean peacefully and politically, but some people you have to defeat. King knew that. All movements know know that. So as you study all this as a sociologist, a scholar, uh, how can you help us answer that question? Who we can persuade and who we finally will have to defeat, again, peacefully
1: and politically. So I'm a sociologist, so I, I make distinctions, right? Um and and one of them I I actually make in the piece that you cited about uh my experience at Stone Mountain, uh George on my mind. And that's between people who are engaging in an act of fantasy about what America means. The sociologist James Aho, who's one of the kind of premier uh scholars of religion in the far right, calls this the far right fantasy, which essentially projects this mythological white Christian America onto the past. And also, he, he talks about how there's the construction of you know, conspiracies and demons and revelations, right? Those, those people who have really succumbed to this kind of far right fantasy, I think, are very difficult to reach, and in many cases have used that fantasy as the basis for arming themselves, and resorting to violence and a potential war to save the country. And I think that that those folks are likely the ones you have to imagine as the ones to defeat. At the same time, there's a larger group of Americans, and these are some of the folks that I think I was ascribing to this more generic Judeo-Christian nationalism, who have simply fallen prey to this kind of historical amnesia. And I borrowed that that term from a writer named Anthony McCann, who wrote a really beautiful book about the Malheur occupation of sort of the the group that coalesced around the Bundys. And this amnesia is the kind of sort of stance where we don't reflect on the history of the things in our culture that feel exclusionary to many people, things like Confederate symbols that are kind of built into our culture and our environment. And amnesia is a passive stance, right? It's not something that we are dug into or actively committed to. It's essentially a decision to be inactive. And I think that many of the folks who have been amnesiacs about American history and the role of white supremacy in it are open to learning and to grappling with that history and its implications. And I would say that those are some of the folks that we want to persuade.
0: Well, you're doing terrific work on this. I just am very grateful for your work and this time. And uh, I hope you can map out more and more people who are trying to correct bad faith and talk to what, what true faith is and then work with people of many faiths or no faith at all. Because this is this is about whether multiracial democracy is possible. So, thankful for all of your work. Well,
1: thank you, and I'm thankful for yours as well. Um, And, you know, thanks for inviting me to be part of this conversation.
0: For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.